At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey there, Outside In listeners. There is a single stray F-bomb in this story that we have left unbleeped. If you'd like to try to skip it, it comes at about 18 and a half minutes when we're talking about the conclusion of a global climate negotiation. So good luck. As I said, I've had the privilege of knowing, working some with John and his son Michael over the last uh, six years. I've learned much from that association. I'm confident that you'll feel the same after today. It's my distinct honor to introduce Governor John Henry Sununu. This is Joe DeLeo, a meteorologist who doesn't believe human activity is driving global warming. Introducing John H. Sununu in 2013. Sununu served as governor of New Hampshire for six years, from 1983 to 1989. In political circles, he's famous for being a rhetorical knife fighter, an attack dog, and an expert crafter of incendiary sound bites. And that's Annie Ropeek, environment reporter in New Hampshire Public Radio's newsroom. Thank you very much, Joe. We've gathered to bring some reality and some sound science to the ongoing debate on climate change and global warming. John H. Sununu is famously whip-smart. He reportedly scored near the top on a test that billed itself as a mega-IQ test, intended to distinguish who are the smartest among geniuses. Following his governorship, he was White House chief of staff and is something of an elder statesman to the GOP. And I'm pleased to be amongst uh, this very distinguished gathering of experts who have come to make sure that the world knows that the debate on the science is not over. As chief of staff, John H. took a special interest in the subject of global warming. But the anti-growth and anti-development crowd 
are a very hardy bunch. They won't give up. John H. gave this speech at a conference for the Heartland Institute, a think tank that has focused on trying to rebut mainstream climate science. In this speech, Sununu lays out his theory of the origins of global warming. My message today is to make sure we recognize that no matter how effectively we deal with exposing the errors and games behind that agenda, we need to know that the battle will never end because the issue is not really global warming. This global warming crisis is just the latest surrogate for an overarching agenda of anti-growth and anti-development that grew and gathered support in the years after World War II. Global warming, John H. argues, is a Trojan horse, carrying within its belly the real objective, massive reform to the capitalist system, socialism, and the scaling back of economic growth. One of the first issues to be celebrated as a crisis by these reformers was overpopulation. That fad peaked in the 60s and 70s. The Bible of that cult, the population bomb, argued that the battle to feed all of humanity is over. And it claimed we had lost the battle, predicting that in the 1970s and 1980s, hundreds of millions of people would starve to death. That clearly phony crisis was followed by warnings about global climate change. He argues that the primary tool of these plotters is computer models. In 1972, a group called the Club of Rome used a computer model to argue the world would soon face resource scarcity, food shortages, and economic collapse by the end of the 1990s, all of which failed to materialize. John H. Sununu argues that, similarly, climate researchers have cooked the books, used the models to achieve a predetermined outcome. The cast of characters involved in this has expanded a bit, but at the core, there is an unbroken lineage back to those unbelievably wrong, unscientific prognosticators. The speech we're hearing is from 2013, and maybe you've heard arguments like this, perhaps even recently. The expense of this would be absolutely tremendous. I mean, there's no way to even, I don't think, comprehend how much implementing this would cost. Well, first of all, H.L. Mencken, who was a Democrat, said it uh, correctly. The urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. This is really about socialism. This is nothing more than a socialist Trojan horse. That's why they've inserted all sorts of programs into the Green New Deal that have nothing to do with green energy. But John H. Sununu has been making this argument since the 1980s, well before global warming became politicized and intractable, back when there was 20% less carbon in the atmosphere and when there was more time to transition to a lower emissions society. What's interesting about Sununu is that he developed this whole skepticism and um, all of these objections uh, on his own. And yet now... They have become, uh, in, various, in various forms, um, the main talking points of, of the right uh, and, and climate denialists. But I think he came at them independently. Um, so in some ways, he's a kind of prime mover there. This is author Nathaniel Rich. In the 1980s, there was a growing momentum to address climate change, momentum that ultimately fizzled out. 
This was the moment where history could have swerved in a very different direction. Rich first wrote a detailed account of this period in an article called Losing Earth, but an expanded book version is due out next month. It's a tale that prominently features John H. Sununu. Now, if you look at it, if you just came to him cold, you'd say, oh, he's just one of the rest of them. But no, I think actually, strangely, this sort of, these these crank theories have become the, the you know, central tenets of of republicanism. Today on Outside In, a family that's been on the front lines of climate change politics since the very beginning. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. The Sununus are perhaps the most powerful family in the history of New Hampshire politics. They've been governors, a senator, a congressman, and even a White House chief of staff. Today, we're going to track this one political dynasty, and with it, mainstream Republican thought on climate change, where it's been, where it is now, and maybe where it's going. Clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty. These are part of the birthright of every American. A thing to keep in mind, a huge number of our foundational environmental laws, the creation of the EPA, the Clean Water and Clean Air Acts, the Toxic Substances Control Act, and many more, were passed in the 1970s under Richard Nixon. To guarantee that birthright, we must act, and act decisively. It is literally now or never. At this point, environmental issues had strong bipartisan support, and Republicans wanted to be sure they didn't cede this ground to the Democrats. I believe in a sound, strong environmental policy that protects the health of our people and a wise stewardship of our nation's natural resources. But that's enough about me. But less than a decade later, under Ronald Reagan, the backlash to the environmental movement grew. He put administrators in charge of the EPA and Department of Interior, who worked to roll back Nixon-era policies and open up previously protected land. His EPA administrator, Ann Gorsuch, who also happens to be Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch's mother, cut the EPA's budget by more than 20 percent. And when lawmakers accused her of mismanaging Superfund dollars, she wound up being held in contempt of Congress. Reagan's Interior Secretary, James Watt, increased the acreage of land the federal government leased for coal mining by around five times. The Secretary of Interior, Jim Watt, is the prime target for those who claim that this administration is out to level the forests and cover the country with blacktops. Someone in the press the other day said if Jim discovered a cure for cancer, there are those who would attack him for being pro-life. These figures were not popular. Environmental groups fundraised and rallied against them, and they were pushed out. And so in 1988, when George H.W. Bush ran for president, he positioned himself to regain the trust of the environmental community. We all know that human activities are changing the atmosphere in unexpected and in unprecedented ways. Much remains to be done. By this time, global warming was already a high-profile public issue. The first official government summary of climate science was finished in 1979. 
Two more landed within a week of each other in 1983 and were covered by newspapers and TV news. James Hansen, a NASA scientist who wrote one of the first computer models of the greenhouse effect, first testified before Congress on the issue back in 1982. Articles about his research had already been front-page news in the New York Times. So it should come as no surprise that this was an issue that Bush was talking about as a presidential candidate. What's particularly noteworthy to me that I remember was the one-liner on climate change where Bush stated that those who are worried about the greenhouse effect are ignoring the White House effect. He was making a very clear commitment on the issue. This is Rafe Pomerantz, an environmental activist who's worked for Friends of the Earth, the World Resources Institute, the State Department, and a hodgepodge of other campaigns and organizations. In the early 80s, he spent years putting global warming on the national stage by personally arranging meetings between lawmakers and a prominent government climate scientist. By the time the 90s rolled around, Rafe had already seen more than one climate change hype cycle wax and wane with no real action. So you're right that uh, there were Republicans who were taking the issue seriously. Now, these were liberal Republicans, but I would say in the whole, the Republican Party was much more moderate and open at that stage. So that's the political vibe of the 1980s. Some Republicans are prioritizing business over conservation, but you still had a Republican running for the Oval Office explicitly claiming he would be the, quote, environmental president, unquote. It's here that we turn our attention to John H. Sununu. At first, he was an engineering professor at Tufts, but he decided he wanted to put his smarts to work serving his community. He won a seat to the local planning board and later in New Hampshire's 400-member House of Representatives. He lost four elections, twice for the state Senate and once for the governor's council and finally the Republican primary to be New Hampshire's U.S. senator. But in 1982, he won the governor's office. And like other Republicans of this era, he dabbled in environmental protection. In fact, Rafe Pomerantz helped with an environmental campaign that caught John H.'s attention. I was involved with many leaders in New Hampshire in a major campaign around acid rain at the time. Acid rain looks, feels, and smells like any other rain. But the water in acid rain carries poisons like sulfuric acid. An enormous number, over 100 towns at the annual town meeting, uh, approved resolutions calling for action on acid rain. That campaign organized a conference in Manchester, New Hampshire, and all of the Democratic candidates vying to be the nominee to challenge Reagan attended. But curiously, or importantly, John Sununu, the governor, came to the conference. And uh, my recollection is, is that Sununu ultimately was a supporter of, a, of acting on acid rain. As governor, John H. Sununu signed the nation's first acid rain legislation, requiring a 25 percent reduction on sulfur dioxide emissions in the state. So in environmental issues, it seemed that John H. and President Bush would be on the same page. In the 1988 presidential primary, Sununu threw his weight behind Bush's candidacy. The bombastic governor's rhetorical force and connections helped Bush win, first in New Hampshire, and then his party's nomination. We had a great candidate, a candidate who got his message out, a candidate who engaged certainly with his uh, nearest rival, made it very clear what the difference was, and uh, what I think are the most discriminating voters in the country, did a little comparison shopping between the two of them and decided George Bush was head and shoulders above them. In thanks, after he won the White House, Bush appointed Sununu his chief of staff. It was in that powerful role that John H. personally shepherded a bill through Congress that set a gradually declining cap on pollution that causes acid rain and allowed polluters to trade the right to emit. 
It was the model for the type of market-based solutions to climate change that we're still debating today. All of this adds up to a situation in which it would seem that when it comes to global warming, George H.W. Bush, who had promised to deal with the issue on the campaign trail, and John H. Sununu, who had proven himself to be a pragmatic dealmaker on acid rain, would be simpatico, ready to get to work crafting some kind of conservative solution. And in fact, when Bush came to office, the table was set for them to do something big. Less than a year after Bush's inauguration, world leaders planned a meeting, the first ever international talks on a binding treaty to limit greenhouse gas emissions. The talks would be held in Nordvik in the Netherlands. This would be the ideal place for Bush to hold true to his promises of being an environmental president to lead the world in addressing climate change. But immediately it became clear that John H. did not see global warming as being like acid rain. And this teed up an internal battle within the Bush administration. This became an issue inside the Bush uh, White House and agencies. Some people really uh, very enthusiastic about moving forward. Others, like Governor Sununu, chief of staff, would not. And what happened was, during the crucial week when they were going to make a decision, Hansen again shows up. James Hansen is that NASA scientist, the one whose models of the greenhouse effect first got Congress's attention back in the early 80s. He had continued coming before lawmakers, including now-famous bombshell testimony in 1988, when he declared that global warming was already being observed. Now he was testifying again. But this time, John H. Sununu intervened. And Hansen's testimony was altered by the Bush administration. And later, as I have learned, Sununu claims he altered the testimony and diminished its conclusions. The new text said that climate change might be attributable to, quote, natural processes, unquote, which Hansen did not believe. This was leaked to the press and was splashed all over the front page of the New York Times. The Bush White House wound up with egg all over their faces. The Hansen alteration had a big political impact on the deliberations inside the Bush White House. Rafe says that when you look back at newspapers of the time, you see editorial writers throwing Bush's own words back at him. The self-proclaimed environmental president had promised his administration would tackle climate change. Instead, they'd been caught doing just the opposite, secretly trying to downplay the problem. It put the White House on the defensive. And for a moment, in the roiling internal debate within the administration, it seemed like John H. Sununu had lost. Just before the historic first-ever climate negotiations in the Netherlands began, he wrote a telegram to the State Department's negotiators, reversing his previous position and telling them to work toward a, quote, full international consensus. Here again is Nathaniel Rich, the author of Losing Earth. So the strangest detail of all is that there's a series of talks on the eve of the trip in November at a, at a, a Tony Hotel in D.C. in front of inv- international or investors in the American Stock Exchange. Sununu, um, although he's not there to speak about climate change necessarily, he's, he's just there in his capacity as sort of powerful person within the Bush administration, talk about the economy, um, spends most of his talk uh, on, on Nordvik and on this uh, idea of a treaty and in fact uh, comes out fairly forcefully, it's a very strange uh, thing to read, um, in favor of a global agreement. And he's challenged at one point by an investor in the audience who says, well, isn't this going to have some major short-term economic costs? Um, 
And he says, yeah, there will be some upfront costs, but that's nothing compared to the, the, back, you know, the back-end costs if we don't do anything. And yet, despite all of this, despite having lost face by altering Hansen's testimony and having been pressured into supporting a global greenhouse gas treaty, somewhere between that speech to investors and the final negotiation in Nordvik, Sununu flipped again. It meant Americans began the talks with a hardline stance. We won't sign anything that's binding um, in terms of emissions reductions and... Uh, you know, we won't, we, won't, we won't take part in anything that doesn't consider the economic implications in the short term, basically. And that's the end of the dream of a, of a global binding uh, treaty, essentially. That's the, that's the closest we've ever come since. This set the template for all climate talks that followed. Every subsequent attempt at a binding greenhouse gas reduction treaty has failed. Even the much-lauded Paris Agreement, which the U.S. also backed out of, was completely non-binding. This is where we get this great quote, which I think is the Swedish environment minister walking out of the room yeah. and saying, your government is fucking this up. Yeah, right. And they did. If that binding treaty had been signed in 1990, and if the global community had lived up to it, there could have been 15% less carbon in the atmosphere when the effort to scale back emissions began. There would have been a 30-year head start on developing solutions and driving down their cost. In short, the problem would have been a lot easier to solve. Sununu today would say, uh, well, we were just being the only honest broker, that all these other governments were full of it and had no intention of living up to any kind of treaty, binding or not. This was not the end of John H. Sununu's legacy with regards to global warming. He resigned from the White House in 1991 after he was found to be using military planes for personal trips and taking a White House limousine to a stamp auction. But just a few months later, he got a job as one of the regular hosts of the TV show Crossfire. Live from Washington, Crossfire. On the left, Mike Kinsley. On the right, John Sununu. For Jerry Taylor, it was an ideal situation. Yeah, I, uh, I, I left college in 1986. I didn't graduate. I wanted to get into politics. Jerry was a prominent climate change skeptic at the time that he was a regular guest on Crossfire. He used to work for the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank that also traffics minority viewpoints on climate science. I was one of the nation's leading uh, uh, gunslingers uh, promoting climate uh, skepticism. Jerry has since left the Church of Climate Skepticism and is now the president of the Niskanen Center, which works to promote conservative solutions to global warming. But back when he was on the other end of the spectrum, he was a frequent guest on Crossfire. This was a political TV show that The New York Times described as, quote, a weeknightly half hour of aggressively expressed, uncomplicated opinions delivered in a spirit of absolute certitude. But in where I am at Easy the end sex. of the sex. No, Daily sex. Well, if you talk frequent about that. Sex. You, what what phrase you do you want about, me to use? If you talk about that, you can talk about adults. Uh, they generally have a script where you have... Uh, a person on the right who argues very strongly for you know, non-action, and then you'd have a person from the environmental community on the left arguing very strongly for action, and producers were there to book the, uh, the, the most telegenic and uh, glib and entertaining people they can to take those two slots. And uh, uh, back in those days, I was nothing if not glib and entertaining. <laughs> Just like their guests, the Crossfire hosts, including John H. Sununu, were not expected to be neutral. And this was the 90s. 
it was the period during which oil companies were beginning to launch a media campaign designed at undermining the scientific underpinnings of global warming. The media pounced on these new talking points. Suddenly, the issue had two sides. And John H. Sununu was a perfect fit for the role of climate change skeptic. I mean, he had just left the White House as chief of staff, so he's still an important political player uh, in Washington. And so it's kind of a thrill to get a chance to uh, hobnob with somebody like that, and especially since uh, John Sununu uh, was steeped in uh, climate knowledge and climate skepticism, and he was no casual actor. Through the 90s, think tanks began to sprout up with their own self-proclaimed experts, like Jerry Taylor, who you could book for your talk show. Whereas previously, global warming journalism had meant writing about dry government reports and national research council summaries, now it could be covered as talking heads shouting at each other. It was the beginning of a time in which the media shifted from covering climate change as a scientific certainty to something that was up for debate. And as host of Crossfire, John H. was given a prominent voice in that debate. And so in these conversations, oftentimes I'd be in a debate. And uh, in the course of the back and forth, uh, Sununu would jump in and uh, throw his own shots uh, that were as capable as those that I was putting on the table. So uh, he was not disengaged and he was not lightly informed. We couldn't find any old footage of Sununu talking about global warming on Crossfire, but other records show his main arguments in this period were simple. The climate system is complex, climate models are too simplistic, and the jury is still out on global warming. These are all talking points that, at the time, Jerry Taylor was also using. But unlike John H., as Jerry dug deeper into climate science, he became disillusioned with the arguments of the skeptics. When I was on these programs and talking with uh, Governor Sununu, what he was putting on the table uh, was no more enlightened than the kind of uh, crack pottery that I was marketing in unknowingly at the time. John H. Sununu would hold on to his platform on Crossfire for six years, all the way up through 1998. Exactly the way you misrepresented in California. No, no, John, you no used the right word. Here whatsoever. And then he stepped out of the limelight. He began to take an interest in business, investing in all kinds of companies. He was on the board of a company drilling for oil in Southeast Africa and even bought a 10% stake in an honest-to-goodness gold mine in Azerbaijan. As John H. eased into the private sector, Republicans began flirting with a new approach to the climate issue, just as a new Sununu with his own views was rising into political prominence. Uh, I thought it was more important to get something done, to get a good bipartisan bill that raised those fuel efficiency standards. Um, After a quick break, the next generation takes the reins. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive 
territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoplu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. There are a lot of Sununus. John. <laughs> New Sununu. No. Okay. There are a lot of Sununus. John H. Sununu and his. It is impossible to say that name multiple <laughs> times in a row. Frick. Okay. Oh my God. There are a lot of Sununus. John H. Sununu and his wife Nancy had eight children. Most aren't public figures, or at least they keep a lower profile. Daughter Kathy runs a museum, son Pete works for a media company in Louisville, and son James works in the family business, which, it's worth noting, spans a lot of areas that are kind of adjacent to energy and climate. Oil, mining, water infrastructure, utilities, there's a lot going on. But some of those Sununus have gone on to use the family name and political connections to their advantage. In 1996, during the Clinton administration, John E. Sununu, that's the son, not the father, was elected to his first term in the U.S. House of Representatives for New Hampshire. If John H. Sununu was a prime mover in the shift of the Republican Party's stance on global warming, an early voice for the abandonment of mainstream climate science in favor of the fringes that questioned the very foundation of atmospheric physics— how would his son approach climate? Let's start off, Senator Sununu, with the energy bill. As you mentioned, the energy bill passed after a very close fight in Congress. My understanding was you initially opposed this bill. No, uh, no, not at all. Um, what I opposed was uh, the tax package. John E. served in the U.S. House of Representatives for three terms starting in 1997 and was the youngest member of Congress that whole time. He was seen as a rising star, a party darling, who in 2002 was recruited to oust a Republican incumbent from the Senate that had been giving the party heartburn. He won. So this is a case where, you know, if you actually stand up for doing something that's bipartisan, then some partisan, in this case from the far left, is going to come at you and say, oh, you, you did While he was in office, his voting record was consistently conservative. The times that he broke with the rest of his party were usually because he viewed their proposals as not adhering to Republican principles. He joined a Democratic filibuster of the Patriot Act because he believed it infringed on personal liberty. We had to filibuster the bill. We had to stop it in its tracks in order to get those changes made. But they were worth fighting for, and I'd fight for them again. And he helped block an energy bill, calling it a grab bag for special interests that was too expensive. But toward the end of his time as senator, thanks in part to the unpopularity of the war in Iraq, Republicans had lost their majorities in both the House and Senate. And good morning to you. It is a new day in America. The people have spoken, a seismic shift in the House of And in this environment, action on climate change experienced a brief moment of bipartisan support. Hi, I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House. And I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be Speaker. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. We need cleaner forms of energy, and we need them fast. For years, Republican Senator John McCain and Democrat Joe Lieberman had been pushing different versions of something called the Climate Stewardship Act. 
These are facts that cannot be refuted by any scientist or any union or any special interest that's weighing in more heavily on this issue than any issue since we got into campaign finance reform. Mr. President, that's the Arctic Sea. That's the Arctic Sea. And you look at the red line, the boundary of it in 1979. Look at it now. You can believe me or your lion eyes. This was a cap-and-trade bill, a market-based carbon reduction scheme that used the same model that John H. Sununu, that's the father, had helped to get through Congress in order to deal with acid rain. In Senator Sununu's case, he actually had an interest in um, climate bills. This is Grant Bossy. I worked on energy and climate issues for Senator John E. Sununu from 2003 to 2008. Toward the end of John E.'s time in office... Remember, that's the son. Republicans were on their heels and were looking at an unfavorable election map in 2008. And he had a tough opponent, the state's first ever female governor. So despite being a rising conservative star, despite the name recognition his family enjoys, John E.'s re-election was a real question. So with, with Democrats holding the gavels... There was a lot more momentum to pass some kind of carbon bill. Uh, And when it looked like Congress was going to pass something, then you want to jump in. You want to make that bill as as, uh, uh, productive as you can. Which is how it came to be that John E. Sununu, son of the man who would go on to call climate science unbelievably wrong, prominently signed on to a carbon cap and trade bill, a collaboration with Delaware Democrat Tom Carper, the Carper-Sununu plan. Yeah, there were all sorts of bills that varied in scope um, and varied in their approach. Uh, Some were more uh, top-down. Bernie Sanders had a bill that was pretty much the federal government taking over the energy sector. Um, McCain-Lieberman was uh, cap-and-trade bill. Carper-Sununu was actually multi-pollutant, so it had as much to do with air quality, sulfur, nitrogen, mercury. Um, So because Senator Sununu cared about it, I cared about it. So what did Sununu's bill look like? It was a so-called cap-and-trade bill, cap as in it set a cap on economy-wide carbon emissions, and trade as in it allowed companies to buy and sell allowances to emit carbon up to that cap. So you've got a financial incentive to free up as much of that those emissions as possible uh, so you can sell the right to emit to somebody else. This is the same scheme as John H. Sununu, the father, designed to deal with acid rain. It's a market-driven solution, and Grant says John E. Sununu wanted to carry that idea forward on climate change in Congress. But more to the point, when you listen to John E. Sununu at the time, he supported a wide range of initiatives to deal with climate change. Here he is on New Hampshire Public Radio in 2008. We got the bill done. It's been signed into law. And we can and should come back and look at that tax package because there are a lot of pieces in it that are very good, that I support. Uh, t- uh, tax credits for, for, for wind, uh, renewable energy, for solar, for biomass. Um, uh, all of those are provisions I've supported in the past and will continue to support. So just to make it crystal clear, Senator Sununu, the energy bill... That President Let's sum this up. John H. Sununu, the father, arguably was the most important single political actor opposing a binding global treaty to limit climate change. But nearly 20 years later, John E. Sununu, the son, facing a tough re-election and a political landscape in which the most prominent Republican was championing a domestic carbon reduction bill, is putting forward his own climate bill and talking up tax credits for renewable energy. 
And so you saw a number of Republicans uh, offering these ideas, mainstream Republicans, even conservative Republicans. This is Jerry Taylor again. Climate action is coming. Best that we do it in a rational market-based fashion than by some scattershot regulatory jihad. Um, so the so Senator Sununu was not an outlier in the GOP by any means, even though there were conservatives on the GOP who opposed these ideas. Uh, back at that time, uh, you can take this position without uh, risking your political career with the Republican base. But the bipartisan efforts to pass an economy-wide cap-and-trade bill fizzled when McCain launched a bid for president and abandoned the idea. For a lot of critics of the GOP, this all prompts a question. Were those mainstream Republicans like John E. Sununu sincere? And more broadly, are they ever sincere when it comes to action on climate change? Or is this all posturing, what climate activists call predatory delay? You know, I think with regard to climate, there was a certain amount of avoidance. This is another former staffer for John E. Sununu, Sheridan Brown. There were things that he did that he could tout, you know, a cap-and-trade bill towards the end when he was up for a a tough re-election. But... uh, there didn't seem to be a lot of interest. Unlike Grant Bossy, who, while he says he's very discouraged by the state of today's politics, has stuck with the Republican Party, Sheridan has become disillusioned with the right and become a loud critic of the Sununu family. He's now on the team that believes John E. was never serious about acting on climate. If you were truly believing that climate change existed and was caused by by man man-made emissions of carbon... You wouldn't be at the same time pushing for more drilling in places like the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. You know, that's the two are just not not in agreement. Grant Bossy doesn't buy this. You had a bunch of people, Republicans and Democrats, that agreed that, yeah, the the earth is warming. Uh, human activity almost certainly has something to do with that. Uh, and it would probably a good, be a good idea if we could do something about it and lower our carbon emissions in a way that didn't cripple the economy. I mean, there was always a great emphasis on, on the fact that you were dealing with an engineer. But he wasn't a climatologist. He was a <laughs> mechanical engineer. Yet great weight was placed on, here's a bright guy, here's an engineer who can think this through. Um. It's really funny that you say that because (laughs) that feels like a Sununu family trend. Yeah. Uh, I'm an environmental engineer. I studied and worked in the environmental engineering field for 10 years. So this is something um, that I know a lot about. Uh, Combine that with running a ski resort where we're completely weather dependent. John E. lost his campaign for re-election to the Senate in 2008. He washed out of office in the Democratic wave triggered by Barack Obama's election. But New Hampshire wouldn't go long without a Sununu in the halls of power. Um, the earth has been slowly warming since the mid-1800s. There's, there's no doubt about that. Is it man-made or not? Look, one thing I do know, nobody knows for sure. Back in New Hampshire, another Sununu was making moves in the business world. Chris Sununu, the second youngest of the eight children, was put in charge of a very big family project. The Sununus worked with a group of investors to purchase Waterville Valley, a ski area in the heart of New Hampshire's White Mountains, a move which, if you're concerned about climate change, might seem like a risky one. New Hampshire's winters are already getting warmer, and research says that's bad news for the ski industry. 
but so far Waterville Valley has soldiered on. After the sale, Chris was made CEO of the resort, but the whole family got into lending their heft to promote it. Hey there, this is Pete Sununu with the Waterville Valley Resort. It's been very gratifying for the whole Sununu family. Uh, we took it over uh, and we're able to kind of reinvest those dollars right here in New Hampshire. But even as he was managing the ski area, which included overseeing a major expansion of the trail network and adding new lifts, Chris Sununu was dipping his toes into politics. In 2010, he won a seat on the Executive Council, which is an office that's very specific to New Hampshire. It's a panel of five that share executive branch power with the governor. What was interesting is that uh, Chris Sununu was always opposed to the solar projects. This is another Chris, now Congressman Chris Pappas. He served with Chris Sununu on the executive council at a time when the five-member body was split 3-2 with Republicans in the majority. Um, You know, we would have a discussion and sometimes get to an agreement on some of the other um, alternative sources of energy. But whenever it was a solar project, um, he was leading the charge against it. A main job of the executive council is to approve state contracts, public money that's already been set aside and just needs to be actually spent. One kind of contract that often comes before the panel is for renewable energy projects, hoping to receive grants from the state's renewable energy fund. When efforts to pass federal climate legislation faltered and fell apart in Obama's first term, climate advocates shifted their attention to state-level policies and trying to get local renewable energy projects off the ground. Still today, that's where most of the policies aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions are advancing. Back then, I was New Hampshire Public Radio's environment reporter. And when Chris Sununu was on the executive council, getting one Republican councillor to flip and vote for them became the only way that a solar project could move forward. You're remembering that very um, correctly. And oftentimes, um, that's how we tip the balance, uh, was just local folks weighing in in support of a particular project, getting to their councillor or other members of the council and just saying, what's the holdup here? You know, we're waiting on these dollars to do something pretty important for our community. In his six years on the executive council, Chris Sununu never voted to give a state grant to a single commercial-scale solar array. My takeaway is that he's skeptical of solar and the promise that it holds. More than wind, more than, you know, any other type of renewable generation? That's been my experience. So from the beginning... From his investments in the ski industry to his antagonism toward the solar industry, Chris Sununu hasn't seemed very concerned about global warming. But his rhetoric on the subject has shifted. In 2016, after three terms on the executive council, Chris Sununu won the governor's office. This is how he talked about climate change when he was running in a competitive Republican primary. Nobody knows absolutely one way or the other, whether it's man-made or not. We have to be smart. And with myself in the governor's office, we have the opportunity to have a governor that understands these issues. Now here he is two years later when he was running for re-election and had to worry less about turning out the Republican base. Uh, let's be very clear. Uh, humans have contributed to climate change. That, that is not a question, uh, contrary to what my opponent may say. I'm the only candidate on this stage that has fought to lower electric rates. And here he is live on New Hampshire Public Radio late last year. Two more quickies on this. So do you now agree, Governor Sununu, with the consensus that man-made emissions are indeed responsible for the temperature rises that we're seeing? uh, Man-made emissions have a a part to play in climate change. 
Yes, fact, done. Let's move on, right? What do we go to your original question? What are we going to do about it? Right. What right? do you do? Yeah. About what it? are we going to do about it? And that's where my focus is, is in terms of what is a, a, an appropriate, not just role, but a position to be in terms of making sure that we're being responsible. Uh, we're helping the environment. We're looking at the social impacts. And again, we're just in a, a tougher place than a lot of other states when it comes to the economic impact, because we're already so burdened with these incredibly high electric rates. So what's going on here? If John H. Sununu was a prime mover, a Republican who began to question climate science before that was a safe, obvious political bet for Republicans to make. And if John E. Sununu was in office at a time where Republicans felt it was necessary to at least put forth some sort of proposal for how to mitigate climate change. What does Chris Sununu represent? You might be able to tell that it's hard to pin him down. He's not the only Republican who has had to hedge on climate change these days. It's just not a winning issue with their base, even as the pro-business crowd sees economic opportunity in finding solutions. No matter what Chris Sununu believes personally about global warming, he's working within a Republican Party at war with itself. It's no longer his older brother's GOP, which could get away with taking climate change seriously, talking about policy solutions. It's the GOP of 2019. You can see a very clear dividing line in the party between uh, 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 pre-Tea Party and post-Tea Party. Again, Jerry Taylor of the Niskanen Center. Pre-Tea Party, you could be a Republican, even a staunch conservative like Senator Sununu, and argue that we have to do something about climate change. And you were not jeopardizing your career in a primary challenge or anything of the kind. Nor were you, you know, uh, uh, symbolically speaking, putting on a Che Guevara t-shirt by making that argument. Nobody's going to question your conservative bona fides. They may disagree with you about the issue, but after all, atmospheric physics is not ideological, and there's room for disagreement about this within the Republican Party. But after 2010, that changed, or excuse me, after 2008 and that election, uh, taking a realistic position on climate became an absolute uh, 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 kiss of death. When asked about climate, Chris Sununu doesn't have much to say. He rarely acknowledges the effect that rising seas will have on parts of New Hampshire's small but economically important coast. Or that warming winters will have on the just as important ski industry, which his family still has ties to. When climate change comes up, he tends to pivot to energy and business. He says New Hampshire's electric rates, which are some of the highest in the country, are too high. And he's been in favor of bills that lower those rates and has vetoed bills that he says would raise them. In one case, he vetoed pro-solar legislation that passed on a bipartisan vote in a Republican-dominated legislature. Now that the Democrats have the majority, this same bill is getting even more support. But Sununu is still threatening another veto. His budget proposal for the next two years would also pull money from the state's Renewable Energy Fund, the one that supports those solar projects he used to vote against. In other words, even as his language shifts, his policy priorities don't. But while Chris Sununu, in his role as governor, has thus far been cagey on climate change, there is one more Sununu you should know about, one who has been much more plain spoken. So it's pretty easy to sort of Google your name and find headlines that call you a climate denier. <laughs> sure. Um, so, uh, but it sounds like you're not questioning the idea that, that carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere. Uh, let's let's talk about what that means. A, a climate denier. Do I is the world warming up? Absolutely. I don't think there's any question. And, and for most part, most of the pieces I I publish 
one of the first things I acknowledge is the world has been warming since the mid-1800s. This is Chris's older brother, Michael Sununu. He's not a climate scientist, and he's never been governor or senator. But he has made himself something of a public figure, largely by writing editorials about climate science. By the way, we reached out multiple times via phone messages and emails to all of the Sununus who've taken a public stance in the climate change debate. John H., John E., Chris. Michael was the only one who agreed to sit down and be interviewed. Remember how Chris has used rhetorical contortions to never quite say exactly what he thinks about climate change? That's what an ambitious elected Republican in New Hampshire needs to do to satisfy both the conservative base and the general voting public. While the numbers have ticked up slightly in the last year, only 25 to 30 percent of conservative Republicans say they're worried about climate change. That's compared to more than 50 percent of Republicans more broadly and nearly 70 percent of independents. That's a wide gulf and a real conundrum for purple state Republicans. But Michael can speak his mind. His views on global warming are well outside the scientific mainstream. He isn't sure that observed increases in carbon dioxide are driven by human activities versus natural processes. He isn't sure that CO2 increases drive warming versus the other way around. And he even questions the fundamental principle of the greenhouse effect, the degree to which CO2 molecules effectively absorb heat compared to the role of water vapor in the atmosphere. So I think, you know, I'm not a climate scientist, obviously. I'm a... Nor am I. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do know that I could call, you know, it, after, again, very cursory Googling any number of dozens of climate scientists who would tell me that you're wrong about just about everything that you just said. Um, and I'm curious how you respond to that, the fact that it would be very easy to, to, to produce climate scientists who would, who would reject a lot of your assertions. Um, I think what you have to ask is, is really what are they basing that rejection on? Are they basing it on a, a model form of our climate, which most of those rejections will – that's their foundation, uh, which I would say that that's – you know, models are not science, so to speak. Here, the connection back to his father's views is quite clear. Like John H. Sununu, Michael says that the assumptions and simplifications made by climate modelers make their conclusions unreliable. This is despite the fact that historic climate models have, to date, done a pretty good job forecasting today's measured temperatures. But if John H. Sununu was personally digging into the assumptions made by climate modelers and picking them apart, and John E. and Chris choose their talking points on global warming based on the political calculations of their individual moment... Michael Sununu's views are somewhat different. He hasn't had to create them whole cloth. When you ask him about his influences, he points to a few. Uh, his name is Joe DeLeo. Um, he was actually one of the founders of the Weather Channel. You mentioned Richard Lindzen. Okay. Um, uh, probably nobody's heard of him. Um, I, I think Roy Spencer. Uh, Judith Curry, uh, eminent um, climate scientist. Um, there are voices out there that I think, um, and good voices, that talk about the science. These figures that Michael cites are a who's who of prominent climate change skeptics. They are scientists, and some, like Judith Curry, are actually cited by the United Nations body that evaluates climate science, the IPCC. They're still mainstream, though their studies are the outliers, forecasting much less dire climate change than the rest of the scientific community. When you read climate skeptic blogs, these are some of the maybe two dozen names that come up over and over again in attempts to discredit the IPCC. They're names that are very familiar to Jerry Taylor, the former gunslinger we've been hearing from throughout this story. 
In 2016, Jerry was invited to New Hampshire to give a presentation at the University of New Hampshire. While he was in town, he was asked to brief the president of a local right-wing think tank on climate change over coffee. And uh, we arrived for coffee, and uh, to our surprise, there was Michael Sununu. We didn't expect to see Michael there. We didn't know he was going to be part of the meeting, but that's fine. Uh, He's an important guy. The president of the institute had asked Michael Sununu to come along, in Jerry's words, as a kind of climate consigliere. And so we had some coffee and started this conversation. It became clear that uh, uh, Michael Sununu had downloaded just about everything out of the right-wing think tank world or that ever showed up on Fox News, the Wall Street Journal, or Breitbart, or Rush Limbaugh. Uh, and he was prime for bear, just like his father was uh, back in the day. I don't believe that uh, uh, Michael Sununu uh, uh, had any doubts that the the case for climate action was a, a as he would put it, kind of a cooked up n- a bunch of nonsense that can't withstand even a casual examination. And he was going to demonstrate that to me. <laughs> and so uh, he was off to the races. Uh, and I finally stopped him. And I said, Michael, I don't know if you know this, but. I wrote all that crap 20 years ago. I mean, I, I know what you're, I know, I know this story. I know this evidence. I know these studies you're offering. I know these arguments intimately. I was paid to promote them 24-7. Let me tell you what's wrong with them, or at least why it was that I began to doubt them. But he would have none of it. Michael says he does consulting work for telecommunications clients and says he's worked on water development projects in the Caribbean and Southeast Africa and helps manage Waterville Valley, the ski area his family owns and runs. He was briefly involved with an aborted plan to develop a coal-fired fertilizer plant in the Midwest. As he says, he's not a climate scientist. But when many prominent New Hampshire Republicans have questions about climate science, it's Michael Sununu, not Jerry Taylor, who they turn to. He presents on climate somewhat regularly at the New Hampshire Business and Industry Association's annual conference. Um, do you think that since you've taken on this mantle of, of talking about this, that your views have gotten traction here in New Hampshire? No, <laughs> I don't. Um, uh, I, and it's unfortunate because, uh, uh, as I said, I think there's, there is a overwhelming public con- uh, perception that um, sometimes I feel like Siphius rolling that boulder up the hill. So even even with things like getting invited to the BIA, to present to the BIA, um, which is, a, you know, it's a forum of fairly powerful folks. I mean, it's not, there's, there's lawmakers in that room. Um, you don't think, you don't think your message has landed? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's always hard to tell, but I, I, I mean, to some extent, I, I guess I'll know the message has landed when I see, um, somebody here in New Hampshire Um, get up and say, you know, I was on the other side of the climate debate. But these questions really that he raises actually has some validity. You want to change minds? I I want them to ask the questions. But even though he's invited to address lawmakers and business leaders, even though he advocates for and against energy bills at the New Hampshire State House, leveraging his last name, even though he's an advisor to an energy group that has close ties to the governor, even though the governor is his brother, Michael doesn't believe his opinions on climate change matter more than any other Joe citizens. So you don't feel, for instance, that, I mean, do you get FaceTime with your brother that he's, that oh, he's no. listening to you? Uh, no, 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 no. 
I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, listeners in the general public out there who think that, you know, the Sununu family gets together at dinner every week and, and figures out what we're doing. All 10 of you. Yeah, no, <laughs> it, it is not. And, and um, um, I, I avoid um, a, a talking to my brother about these policy issues, um, one, for his sake, because I don't think um, he really cares to hear me. Um, complain about what he's doing, or he, and he certainly doesn't need me to support, I think, the good things that he's doing. Um, it, it's certainly for his sake, but for my sake as well. I, I think the issue is not, is not, you know, my family. The truth is, Michael Sununu might not need any special access in order for his ideas to hold sway. He might just need to be there, putting out these ideas so that other Republicans can take them and run with them. Certainly, he doesn't have to try hard to convince a lot of Republicans they don't need to put forth any sort of plan for taking action on climate change. One thing that climate skeptics and denialists have done very well is they have made skepticism and denialism about climate science a core part of Republican identity. And that means a lot more to people than being, quote, right about an issue. Times have changed, but the Sununu family is still very much tapped into climate change and energy politics in New Hampshire. Michael testifies against carbon taxes at the state house. Chris vetoes any law that increases electric rates. And their father, John H., the former Crossfire knife fighter, has been known to poke his head back into the issue, too. You violated your own rule and uh, made a comment instead of a question. I'll make a comment. That's the elder Sununu late last year in a ritzy banquet hall with views of New Hampshire's Atlantic coast. He was at a conference that sparked controversy locally because it had a lot of speakers who've become synonymous with climate change denial, and not so many on the other end of the spectrum. But the speakers who were skeptical that we should be worried about climate change had a fan in John H. Sununu. Somebody ought to be telling those folks that if they think they're helping their cause, they're out of their mind. So where does this leave us? Of course, it's anyone's guess. If you'd asked Rafe Pomerantz, the climate activist who watched John H. Sununu torpedo the first climate talks in Nordvik in 1989 he wouldn't have guessed that we'd see the questioning of climate science that we've weathered over the past three decades. The easy part was the science. You put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the earth warms up, very straightforward. Who can, who can, who can argue with this? I was totally wrong, right? Uh, so I thought the science was straightforward. The stakes were enormous, that, people, that there would be a response. I didn't predict the divisions or think that the divisions we now experience would happen. But if anyone's got an idea, it's going to be someone who spends a lot of time talking to Republicans. Someone like Jerry Taylor of the Niskanen Center. Right now, most elected, I would say most elected Republicans, are not the sort of uh, blind denialists that uh, seem to inhabit the White House. Now, that doesn't mean that they're ready to ambitiously act, but their minds are open. One of the... the only common denominator to the Republican Party from the time of Lincoln to the time of Trump, and there is only one common denominator, is that it's always been the party of business, always. And as climate change 
becomes more and more of a problem, it's going to cause more and more losses to businesses, to ski resorts, to fishermen, to the ag industry, uh, to various different other resource industries, uh, to the recreation industry, to, to a number of them. What do you think the chances are that they will just uh, uh, quietly accept those losses versus perhaps launching legal action against the fossil fuel companies that manufactured the products that gave them these losses? We're already starting to see those kind of lawsuits. We've seen them from the municipal level, but we just recently saw them from the fishing industry in the Pacific Northwest, and we're going to start seeing them more frequently, I think, from the ski industry and others. So that's one thing that could change the way Republicans think about climate change. What if their favorite industrial uh, allies uh, are the ones who are increasingly animated about uh, recovering the damages that are being done to them. It does feel like global warming is having something of a political moment right now. We have to deal with this. It's a top issue for Democrats on the 2020 presidential campaign trail. Our planet is in peril. Moderate Republican governors like Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker are acting on climate at the state level. We have tougher, tougher clean air standards. Progressive Democrats have put their weight behind at least the framework of the Green New Deal. Climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential In response, a group of Republicans, including Mitt Romney, Lindsey Graham and Lamar Alexander, have a counterproposal. They're calling a new Manhattan project for clean energy. Clean up our air, raise family incomes. This fall, after a year of fires, floods, and devastating hurricanes, all potentially linked to the warming trend, opinion polls registered the first real uptick in concern about climate change for the first time in more than a decade. But we've been in these moments before. And if history is any judge, there will be Sununus in the room who decide where we go from here. We have tougher, tougher clean air standards. There's 47 other states and most other countries. And twice as strong as the Paris Accord. This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Annie Ropeek, and Taylor Quimby, with help from Daniel Barrick, Corey Princell, Josh Rogers, Nick Capodice, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Justine Paradise. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is director of Dynastic Succession Planning. If you're interested in hearing more about this story, we're trying something new. You can find full, unedited versions of several of the interviews we used to put the story together, including the one with Jerry Taylor, Michael Sununu, Sheridan Brown, and Grant Bossie, on our website, Outside In Radio. If you want to weigh in, find us on Facebook, search for Outside slash In and ask to join our moderated group. Or just shout at us on Twitter. We're at Outside In Radio. I'm at A Ropeek and Sam is at Sam EBNHPR. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Outside In.